0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event.
1: Hello, welcome to this Institute for Government event on civil service impartiality. And we arrive at this subject by a slightly unexpected route, thanks to the former Justice Secretary, Dominic Raab. When he resigned from the government uh, in April, he criticised the inquiry into his behaviour as setting a dangerous precedent and said that it would have a chilling effect on those driving change in government. He claimed that activist civil servants with a passive-aggressive culture were blocking reforms because of their personal views on Brexit and human rights law. Which led to a discussion about whether that's true, whether civil servants are or can be truly impartial, and indeed whether the concept of civil service impartiality, long part of the established values of the civil service, has had its day. Does an impartial civil service mean to you recruitment on merit, the best people in the right jobs, uh, permanent expertise at the heart of government without needing to fill hundreds or thousands of jobs as governments change, and ministers receiving honest advice on matters of high policy to, um, I don't know, speed awareness courses? Um, or would more personal or, or political appointments uh, make accountability clearer and mean ministers more truly round departments? People bringing more zeal to policy making and implementation with more alignment between politicians and administrators. Other countries certainly do do things differently. My name is Alex Thomas. I'm the Programme Director here at the uh, Institute for Government uh, and I lead our work here on the civil service. And we've got a top quality panel here to discuss this, as you can see. But before I, can intru- before I introduce them, uh, it's first called for questions. Get thinking in the room uh, here and those tuning in remotely use the uh, Slido function on your screens. Um, and when you ask a question, if you can, uh, please say who you are and what organisation you're from. We'll be live tweeting from at IFG events, and the hashtag is IFG Civil Service. So do uh, follow and tweet along. So to the panel. Lord O'Donnell, Gus O'Donnell, was Cabinet Secretary and Head of the Civil Service from 2005 to 2011. He was also the Treasury Permanent Secretary, Downing Street Press Secretary, worked at the IMF and World Bank, and is now the Chair of Frontier Economics. Rachel Wolfe uh, is founding partner of Public First, former Downing Street advisor, and the co-author of the 2019 Conservative Party Manifesto. George Eustace, Member of Parliament for Camborne, Redruth and Hale, was Secretary of State at DEFRA from 2020 to 2022, having been a long-serving senior minister in that department. And Aisha Hazarika is Times radio presenter, journalist, former senior special advisor, and a former civil servant, switching from the civil service to the Labour Party long before Sue Gray uh, had a go. <laughs> So, uh, Gus, I will start with you. Uh, open question to start with. What did civil service impartiality mean to you when you were head of the civil service? Well, first of all, what it didn't mean, I mean,
2: surprise, surprise, I'm going to be very strongly in favour of impartiality. It didn't mean neutrality. A lot of people think it means you're just kind of totally grey. And uh, uh, One of the things I got criticised by, by someone in the front row there, was uh, the four P's that I put forward which, about civil service, which was pride, passion, pace, and professionalism. And passion was the one that kind of oh, passion, you know. I'm passionate about the civil service living up to its values of honesty, objectivity, integrity, impartiality. Partiality crucial there, and being very evidence based. So you know, I'm passionate about evidence. I'm passionate about trying to get the outcomes that ministers got elected to achieve, right? which are, you know, clearly in a democracy, that's the way it works. So it's our job to help them achieve that. I think an impartial civil service does that because they come in uh, and they, by virtue of going across changes of administration, they've seen a lot. You know, I can imagine in the recent uh, Credit Suisse, banking crisis, going to ministers, banking crisis, 2008, that's a banking crisis. You know, (laughs) having a bit of experience about these things is quite important mention Black Wednesday either Um, so I think that matters a lot uh, being there through changes of administration being there through lots of different things so being there to understand what's worked and what hasn't worked in the past not having any confirmation bias you know being driven by the evidence I think is really important by their nature politicians tend to be very passionate about their beliefs and quite often their beliefs and then when you confront them with evidence the question is what happens you know and if in the end they say, yeah, I hear what you say, but I want to do X, then we get on and we do X as best we can. So I think by having an impartial civil, civil service, we attract very good people. Uh, that's diminishing because there's other factors going on. But in principle, you know, you can be there, you can develop a really good career. Uh, and that, to me, is really important. It's not to say that special advisors don't have a very important role in this. I've always said really good special advisers are worth their weight in gold. And I've worked with a lot of really good special advisers. Bad special advisers are disastrous, primarily for their ministers. Uh, so I think having an impartial civil service massively important for us. And if you look at... Let's, let's look at who are the most successful civil services around the world. We've only got a few people who have actually tried to answer that question, like the World Bank uh, uh, Institute. You, you were involved in some. When you look at them turns out a very high number of them have impartial civil services so the correlation if not the causation
1: is there. Thanks Gus and lots of themes and points that we'll come back to over the course of the next hour. Uh, one question uh, is we've seen over the last sort of 10 years or so just a sort of shifting of the dial in terms of ministerial involvement in the appointment of civil servants mm-hmm. because there's kind of this there's the requirement to be impartial and then there's yeah. the, there's, there's Uh, rules around appointment, and all these things kind of work together around impartiality. Do you think that's been a good thing, a bad thing? Are we at the kind of right Goldilocks point at the moment, or do you think it's gone too far?
2: (coughs) Unambiguously uh... bad, uh, because it it basically reinforces confirmation bias. You see people choosing people who agree with themselves. And by definition, you know, they're they're not there to be objective. They're not there to impartially weigh up the evidence. They're people who, I'm going to have this person because I know they agree with that policy, And they're going to help me push it through. And, you know, uh, once you go down this route, the problem with it is the ratchet effect. And I've seen it in so many places. Because if you get a number of appointments made that are political, then you can understand a new administration coming in saying, well, I'm not going to work with this lot. They were appointed purely because of their political views. So off you go. Let's get a new lot in. And I you know, work with... Tim Geithner in the US Treasury when we're having the financial crisis, and he's like, I haven't got anybody. I, you know, nobody's been appointed yet. Congress isn't you know, uh, going to letting us get people. It was a real disaster. I mean, I think there are real problems from going down that route. So, uh, yes, the minister's having good special advisors, brilliant, but, you know, let's, let's just keep this in proportion and make sure that we don't end up with cronies, which, again, doesn't help ministers. They need to be challenged, because if they're not challenged by people inside,
1: they'll be challenged by people outside, when it may be too late. Thanks, Gus. And Rachel, I'll come to you. One of the, one of the things that <laughs> runs slightly contrary to some of the points that Gus was saying, though, is that which, which ministers sometimes say is, well, hang on, you know, I'm accountable, I'm on the hook uh, for Parliament uh, for achieving these things, but uh, I can't choose my own people. Um, so there's a tension in uh, that. I mean, I saw some of your comments after the Rob resignation about how ministers could work within the system to um, work with the people that they, they wanted to. Do you think that is? Do you think we've got the best way of doing it at the moment, or is? The yeah, I, should, I
3: mean, I should say I think uh, probably no one on this panel or in this room is talking about whether we should move from a British system to an American system. It's a bit like the NHS debate. We should reform the NHS. Oh no, but we can't be like America. But you no. Know. There are other models available, and I think that is true for the civil service too. What, what I have noticed, um, I suppose is a couple of things. The first is that watching quite a lot of cabinet ministers over the last decade, some of whom have been effective and some of whom have not been, the former category do not just get presented with a group of civil servants, accept them and move on. They are quite careful about learning who they want to work with, finding those people, persuading those people to move departments when they move departments. They're quite imaginative about how they use non-executive directors, policy advisors, academics from the outside. They they create a diversity of thought and experience beyond the kind of classic model as you would see it from the outside. So I think I have certainly observed a, a complete difference between the ones who get things done, who do not break the rules, but explore them to their full extent, and those who do not. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, The second, and and this is my personal experience, my first interaction with the government was when I uh, was running a charity that was delivering the free school program in 2010. And uh, we worked with excellent civil servants who did a very good job of uh, trying to deliver (coughs) the program. But I also think it was unquestionably (coughs) the case that having a group of people who really believed in what they were trying to do um, and who had a connection with the people who were trying to set up those schools accelerated that program and delivered things that a pure civil service could not. It's not a bad thing to have some people who care about what they're trying to deliver. It's not the only thing you want, but you you probably want some of them. So so I do think that there is a slight ratchet, a couple of degrees towards uh, accepting that you need more people. I think there are also a couple of of tensions, though, that we we do need to recognize um, as we think about the civil service. The, The first is that now the major differentiators on how people think their political beliefs and their opinions are one, age, and two, education. They split the country. So when you have a civil service that is mostly made up of younger, highly educated graduates, you are probably going to get some less diversity of opinion... Uh, An instinct that might have been the case 20 or 30 years ago, and I think you need to be aware of that. And you need to think about how you're going to counter it. I think the second, and this is a genuinely difficult um, is that um, one man's passionate defense of the evidence uh, and, and challenge is another man's um, uh, refusal to accept a democratic mandate. And uh, that is not to say that that evidence should not be presented. But I think you do have to accept that often there isn't much evidence in either direction. You don't know whether things are going to work or not. And so, again, I think not having a kind of broad diversity of opinion can be quite problematic when you're trying to implement it. Um, I, will give a, I will give an example of this, uh, which you may or may not accept, uh, but which I think is, is quite interesting, which is childcare policy. I have not met any senior civil servants uh, or, or actually uh, special advisors who do not passionately believe that uh, a lack of more generous childcare policy funded through the state is not one of the great blocks to achievement and growth in this country. Um, and yet, when you poll people, focus group people, sort of more generally around the country, it's, it's much less of an issue. Uh, and generally, the kind of childcare they want is much more likely to be grandparents or informal, or they would quite like to work fewer hours themselves, because there are huge class and education differences about how experienced childcare. If you're a professional in London, it's an absolute nightmare. Your parents are probably nowhere near you. You have a career. You want to get on with your career. It's a disaster. And so you pursue it with passion. And that's great, except that everybody in the civil service and around it feels the same way because they're all professionals in London who are pursuing this thing with their career and passion. And so what you don't get is a policy that reflects the lives of people who just want their mum to be able to do a few more hours a bit more cheaply and maybe they could go part time because they really hate their job. So, so I, that's a long way of saying I do think that it's important that ministers are able to choose some people, but I also think we are slightly eliding over some genuine tensions mm-hmm. between the sorts of people who inevitably and rightly are going to go into a permanent civil service and the diversity of opinion and thought you need to make good
1: policy. And there's an implicit assumption in there that, um, which you may, say is, you know, is is completely justified, that uh, more you know political appointments or more ministerial involvement appointments would lead to that greater diversity of views and voices. Is, is, is the answer therefore sort of changing the dial on impartiality, or is it not just a better, more diverse civil service uh, or both?
3: I think it's both. I, I think it's both. And I also think that it's perfectly possible that you could create more appointments and just do it really badly, as Gus said, and just have mm. a lot of people who are 23-year-olds who quite want to serve their minister and don't achieve very much, mm. and there are ways in which you can do it very well. Um, so I, I do think we need a more diverse civil service, and I don't think you can have an impartial civil service unless you have a more diverse civil service. But I also think there is benefit to people with specific experience and indeed beliefs working on a particular project.
1: Thank you, George. Uh, did you feel that you had enough say over ministerial over civil service appointments as a minister? And what sort of service did you feel you got from the civil service when you were in depth?
4: Uh, yes. I mean, I, I never used to get involved in appointments. I was always asked to sort of get involved in appointments to my own private office. But actually, I felt, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a tenant of this office and whoever you appoint might outlast me. And actually, it should be for the for the lead private secretary. But I wanted, I don't want to be pedantic, but I, I'm I'm not sure about the use of the word impartiality in this sense. And it builds really on what Mm-hmm. On what Gus was saying, it's not like the BBC where it's sort of oh well. On the one hand there's this, on the other hand that. I'm sure the debate's going to run and run. Now let's go to the to the weather. It, it's um, so <laughs> it feels different. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's very different from the moment of a general election. Uh, civil servants actually look at uh, the manifestos, they wait for these tablets of wisdom to come down from the parties and they write comprehensive uh, plans to implement that government policy, to tell ministers where they need primary legislation, where they can do it with secondary legislation, what the communications pitfalls are. Uh, that's actually very partial. If there's a, a crisis and there's an urgent question in Parliament, um, they're not partial, um, they're not impartial rather, right? they have to be partial. You've got a, a crisis, you've got half an hour to prepare a statement, um, civil servants supporting a minister in that scenario will come up with all of the arguments. They will predict what the opposition will say. Uh, they will advise a minister on how to shoot down the opposition. And if there's a change in government a week later and people swap sides, they do exactly the same for the other side. So I actually think it's, it's almost a higher calling than impartiality. What we're asking people in the civil service to do is to set aside Uh, their own personal views, and their intelligent people who will have views, uh, in order to serve the government of the day. And I think, therefore, the ethos that we should try and nurture in the civil service is probably much closer to what we have in the armed forces, um, which is to provide a service for the country. Um, and it's really to support the government of the day, be that government right or wrong. And that may be by giving private advice and caution against things, or it may be helping to deliver an agenda in the best possible way. And I always felt the types of people, therefore, that are drawn into the civil service, they tend to be people uh, who have an interest and a passion in public policy, but who look at party politics and think, uh, I couldn't stomach uh, that kind of uh, uh, abuse. uh, And uh, they therefore go into uh, politics. And I think that over time... Um, They probably learn that ministers of all parties are actually uh, fallible human beings, uh, and they learn that quite quickly. And they also um, probably over time, though, develop an appreciation for people who put themselves up for democratic politics, because what they all learn quite quickly is governing is really not that easy. Mm. Uh, Whichever government you are, everything's difficult. And so uh, I'm somebody who comes at this as somebody who... um, is actually a big supporter of the system we have. I think the British system is actually far superior to the American system of administrations for all the reasons Gus said. You, you, you've got that permanence. But I, I would caveat it with two things. Like all eccentric British inventions, uh, it, it actually you need to know how to work the machine. And I think there's been a number of problems uh, in recent decades. Uh, the first is if if there's a challenge in the permanency of the civil service, because it struggles to adapt to uh, an agenda of an incoming government, the only remedy for that is to get good ministers of state and leave them in place for maybe three years, perhaps five years. Prime ministers just haven't been doing that. David Cameron tried. But if you've got a minister who comes in and they're there for one year and then flipped on somewhere else, you can't do anything uh, in a year. It takes you know, the best part of three months to even find the reins, um, six months before you get any uh, kind of ability to do anything, uh, you know, after a year you might have just worked out what you want to do and then you get moved and, and that's hopeless and if civil servants know that that's probably going to happen well, it, it's, it's, there's a natural tendency for them to think, well this, this one's probably going to be gone in three months anyway uh, so uh, let's put this one in the slow lane and that's very debilitating and it's not how the system should work. So there's an onus on Prime Ministers to recognise the importance of getting good ministers of state and leaving them there for as long as possible. I think linked to that, there's been too much churn within the civil service. So with the great strength of our civil servants, uh, civil service is that permanence and accumulated institutional knowledge. Don't churn your civil servants every two years. Try and slow down the churn. Uh, keep good people in place for five years or ten years so that they've actually got uh, that experience and that knowledge. You know, I, by the time I left... After nine years, I was on, in most cases, on to my third or fourth generation of officials uh, on each policy brief. And it, it fell to me to say, well, we tried that in 2014 and it didn't work. And that's quite an indictment, really, on what's happening in the civil service. You need a here-today, gone-tomorrow minister to perform that function. And then I think the final, the final weakness has been a tendency uh, in recent decades, since the 1990s at least, possibly earlier, uh, to have this uh, fad thinking you should separate uh, policy development from policy delivery and whole uh, functions have been spun out to arm's length bodies, each with their own board often quite precious uh, about being told what to do by ministers because they think they're independent and evidence based in some way and often as well feeling shut out from the policy development and I think you can't separate policy development from policy delivery because so much policy goes wrong on the delivery that you need Ministerial engagement right through that process. So I would try and shorten the arm on the arm's length bodies, probably dismantle some of the boards, uh, make more of these um, arm's length bodies agencies uh, more in the sort of direct uh, realm of the, of the civil service, and I think we would then have a stronger system.
1: Thank you. And just I mean, briefly, uh, you touched on this a little bit when you talked about permanence, but um, if one of the benefits of permanence is expertise, uh, how did you experience that in DEFRA? I mean, DEFRA is a pretty expert heavy. Uh, department, um, uh, and you suggested there's sort of too much churn in civil service, which I would uh, agree with, um, how did the expertise manifest itself? Did you feel you, kind of, you were getting that, that insight into deep expertise that you as a minister needed?
4: Yes, I, I developed quite early on um, a view um, that was – I hated submissions, if I'm honest, in the end, and many of you here being civil servants will, will have been trained how to draft these, and they take weeks and weeks working it out um, – But but I used to hate the so-called multiple choice uh, submission where there were three options, two of which were were quite bonkers, and then there was a middle one that the brackets recommended uh, option (laughs) that they wanted you you to do. And I sometimes, just for fun, used to say, right, I'll do, I think the bonkers option A is actually what I would like to do (laughs) in order to provoke... Discussion, it but was on the receiving end of some. You probably were, <laughs> but I, 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 in the end, I used to favour moving away from submissions and actually bringing up a whole team of civil servants, uh, including um, you know the SEOs and the HEOs and the Grade Sixes, those you know, more junior civil servants who had their head under the towel on a on a technical issue, uh, and bring the whole team up and actually just have a discussion about it, uh, and then arrive at a conclusion. And this. You know, I could tell in some quarters people were a bit nervous about that because, of course, they think, well, what if this minister jumps to a conclusion? You know, that will be a nightmare. How will we unpick that? They like to guide you down a, a funnel of their own logic to, a, to an end point. But actually, um, often you can't. These are complex issues and you need to get that discussion and you need to get the junior ranks up. And then we started to bring in. Um, because a lot of the technical, really deep technical knowledge in DEFRA is in uh, bodies like Natural England or CFAS or the Environment Agency. We used to try and bring those people uh, into the discussion uh, as well, because they have less churn. And you, you do tend to find that the, the residual technical knowledge is, is often in those arm's length bodies, but not used as well as it should be. And I felt that that was a better, a better way to access uh, that technical knowledge and to get the right judgment. And I just think on my reflection really was you know, good governance should really be about, you know, the relentless pursuit of quality technical knowledge and good decision-making rather than, you know, abstract hierarchies. And I, and I think that's something, I, you know, I tried to bring to it. Thank you.
1: Aisha, um, special advisors. Gus touched on that. You were a civil servant. You were a special advisor um, uh, as well. Uh, what do you think their role is in, you know, in relation to the civil service and this impartiality question? Well, any other thoughts?
0: I think having been a civil servant first was was really the right way. You know, it was a very good sort of training ground. And I actually started off um, the predecessors to DEFRA, the mini- MAF, the uh, Ministry of Agriculture, mm. Fisheries and Food. And I literally started off as like the sort of dog's body in the press office. I was like, my job was to kind of um, transcribe farming today at some ungodly hour and sort of deliver the post around the, the building. And you're so right about... I mean, it's funny... That, there, there was quite a lot of really nerdy expertise at math. I remember having to call up an insect psychologist who lived somewhere, which I was like, that is amazing, an insect psychologist. Like, bees are sad today. I was like, wow, like, who knew? So I think having done it that way was 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 really, really good for me. So I was a civil servant for a long time, from sort of 1997 to 2005. I then went to business for a couple of years. I worked for the, as an advisor for the global chairman of this big music company, EMI. And then I came back in, as a civil servant, in, uh, as a special advisor in uh, 20, uh, 2007, the sort of last sort of three years of a Labour government, and then uh, went into sort of opposition. And what I kind of think is the best way to make all of this work is that I think there's this often false distinction between civil servants and uh, special advisors and the political team, and I think ultimately. Civil servants, special advisors, leaders in the private office, the permanent secretary, everybody actually wants the same thing. They want to be working on a flagship piece of policy that is successful. gets good headlines, they make a name for themselves, the civil servants, having worked off the back of it, the special advisor gets lots of glory briefing it out to people, the minister gets it. There's the kind of halo effect if people come together and work on something. The idea that there are these kind of false sort of divisions, I just don't buy that because I have seen, you know, life as a a civil servant, then as a special advisor. And I take, for example, a piece of legislation um, we were working on, the Equality Act, and I remember when we um, first started working on, and this had been a piece of legislation which is now, of course, you know, in the news all the time because of the rise on, on gender and, and transgender stuff. That this is the, the Equality Act 2010. And when we inherited it, it was just going to be a sort of consolidation effort, bringing together this thicket of legislation and different regulations. But actually Harriet Harman, the the then Women's Minister, she was also Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, thought, no, 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 I want to do more on it. And I remember at the beginning, the civil servants were very much like Computer Says No, partly because... Nobody had really cared about this brief before. You know, nobody had sort of really thought about doing anything. And Harriet had very, very high expectations and probably some quite ambitious stroke Unreasonable, unachievable aims. And we went, I remember we went through this like frustrating sort of four months, five months at the beginning where every meeting was like computer says no, computer says no, computer says no. And we could have had a moment where we sort of cleaved and, you know, Harriet and I sort of went to war with the civil servants and they absolutely hated us and they went to war with us. But instead, we actually sort of had a moment where we were just like, instead of sort of shouting each other, she and I sort of said to them, OK, well, well, what are the barriers? We're not going to shout at you, just tell us why you can't say no. And then they'd say, well, actually, we tried this thing on childcare, but the the Treasury said that there wasn't enough money. And we tried this thing, the Department of Works. So what it actually was, was they were coming up against blockages in terms of other departments. They were not sort of communicating that to the minister. The minister was then getting angry with them, and there was this sort of disconnect And then how it was like, and I were like, okay, well, we'll we'll help you. We'll go and speak to these people. And then this became a sort of much more of a kind of team effort. And in the end, the Equality Act, we just, I mean, we got it on the statute, but by the skin of our teeth. It was the last piece of legislation that going Labour Party did. But, you know, it's a source of great pride, not just for us, but all the civil servants who are involved in it. And I think that's a really good example of the kind of teamwork that absolutely can and should exist within the civil service. And I always thought that the, having been a civil servant myself and then a special advisor, there's always a sort of creative tension between the civil service and the ministers and the political team. You as the political team, you're under pressure. You've got brilliant journalists like Lucy Fisher in the audience who, you know, are going to be pressing you saying what's happening on this policy. You know, you want to kind of get the good headlines on it. So you have a, a natural desire And so sometimes you do want to push faster and harder than you should. And sometimes your your demands are, you know, probably a bit unrealistic or unworkable in terms of the timeline. It is the civil servant's job not to block you and not to be like computer says no but to hold that line, to hold that line for your own, so that you don't embarrass yourself politically as well. Because there's nothing worse than overpromising and, like, me phoning up Lucy Fisher and giving it the big one that we're going to do this by then, and then actually the civil servants who actually have to deliver it sort of say, "Well, actually, that's not achievable in the timescale. The boundaries aren't going to. Work. It's just unworked. It's not a morality thing. It's just not going to work." And. It's actually unlawful. And I feel like that is something that we have seen a lot, you know, and and I then actually went and did a stint in business, which gave me a really interesting sort of midway point in my journey between being a civil servant and then a special advisor. And then I ended up being acting chief of staff of the party. So I really went from being sort of civil service to very, very sort of political over my, my career. In that time in business, what was fascinating is I was working for the, the, the chairman of a big global success story, a big global uh, music company, very, very big. You know, We were constantly in huge operations all over the world. And what was really interesting is watching how the sort of senior executives who sort of serviced the, the top team there, because they were essentially like the civil servants. And what I saw was good and bad. The things I took away from business were that um, people... In business, who were the essential civil servants, the corporate civil servants? They definitely moved at a pace that hadn't seen within the Department of Trade and Industry, where I worked in the Home Office, Math Number 10, and and the DTI for a long time. There was definitely a pace, but I, I, I have to admit, when I came in from the civil service, I was like, "Wow!" Like, you know, you'd be in a sort of an executive meeting or a board meeting. The sort of CEO or someone on the board would be like, "I want this," and literally two days later, there was a slide, there was presentations. I was like, "Wow!" This goes really, really fast. But the downside was these corporate civil servants could never stand up to their bosses. So everything that the CEO said or the CFO said, you know, once they said that they wanted it, they couldn't push back because their job was on the line, basically. And they could get sort of sacked like that. So what you did end up was was some really quite sort of mad ideas. And, you know, we had very bad, quite a difficult time with mergers and that mergers and acquisitions that never went anywhere. We shouldn't have actually pitched for things. So it just made me really realise, and I came back into government as a special advisor, that having, yes, you know, you should quest for more pace in the civil service. And I think that's really, really important and a bit more creativity and a little bit more can-do. But holding that line is really, really, really important. And I think, you know, the best ministers, and, and these are ministers of all, you know, political stripes have a great relationship with their civil servants. You know when a minister is really good at their job and they're also comfortable and they're good managers. I mean, I look at the Treasury as a really interesting example because the Treasury, you know, became the department that everybody wanted to to work in. Now, that was under... Gordon Brown, Alistair Darling, but also under George Osborne, you know, people absolutely loved working in the Treasury with, with, with Osborne because people at the Treasury did feel that they had that connection. Most civil servants who are ambitious for themselves and ambitious, for them, they want to have proximity to power. They want to have a really good relationship with the special advisers and the ministers because it ultimately helps them with their career. And I think one of the tragedies, and I still have many, many good friends who I worked with in the civil service, I think one of the tragedies is we should really Mm -hmm. treasure what we have in in the civil service, the British civil service. Yes, it can be improved. But when you constantly slag it off and you you criticise everybody as being stupid and lazy and pathetic and they don't understand the world and they're the blob and this, that, the next thing... Guess what? People want to leave the civil service. They can get a better-paid job, a more fun-paid job somewhere else. And you're not going to attract people. And once you start losing that calibre of people, you really lose out. And just a final point I make. Funny enough, on the um, childcare issue. <laughs> so the issue of you are right. There's a really one-size-fits-all when it comes to childcare. But I don't think that's necessarily the fault of the civil servants. Because when I worked for Harriet, arguably, you know, one kind of you know this generation's leading feminist politicians. She pushed really, really hard for grandparents to have more acknowledgement because we went out and about and talked to people. and Lots of people said, we don't need, like, a big, new, shiny childcare policy. I just like, you know, my mum's doing all the slack. You know, could, could she get some kind of recognition? And it was actually the political advisors who blocked us, who were largely young boys, by the way. So I think sometimes it's not the civil servants are actually more with it. It was the political side that didn't have that diversity of of thought. But that gets to a bigger point, which I think you're trying to make, which is about having more diversity in the civil service and definitely amongst special advisors. So a good special advisor should be able to kind of navigate the currents between the very, very, precious and, and high-pressure demands from, from their boss and for their reputation. But they're like the sort of project manager that should, should guide things through and take the temperature, take the sense check from the civil servants and build up a really good relationship with them.
1: Thanks, Aisha. I'm going to come to questions in the room and online in a second. One really quick question, slightly unfair. Where do you think the Labour Party is on this question? On, or do you, imp- on, on impartiality in the civil service generally and civil I service that, reform? I do you think, think they've, they've thought the about part,
0: it? I, I think... I haven't spoken to sort of Keir Starmer directly about this, but knowing everything that I do about him and certainly the people around him, and I know him reasonably well, I think he is innately somebody that quite sort of respects those quite traditional institutions. And I think he sees the value of the institutions and impartiality, particularly having run the, you know, being the head of the current prosecution service and and DPP himself. So I think I can't see a big kind of whole-scale politicisation of the the civil service coming in. What might happen, and just to be honest and to be fair and balanced, when I came in as a very Mm -hmm. junior dog's body civil servant in 1997 in the press office, what what, what was talk of the town then was the fact that when Alastair Campbell came in, quite a lot of senior civil service heads of communication were moved from Mm -hmm. departments. So that is something you, you might see. And the other thing mm. that we don't speak about is we talk about the politicisation of the civil service. A lot of journalists come in to quite big jobs, which are civil service jobs in terms of the comm side. So that is a little bit of sneaky mm. politicisation through the, the back door that we don't really focus uh, on. I want to
1: keep our eye on. Uh, I'll uh, come to questions in a room in a second. There are two questions online that relate to the role of the cabinet secretary, which I will lob to Gus and then, uh, 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 and, and then we'll... Uh, see other questions. One is from Wayne Sumner who says, what should the role of the cabinet secretary be in re-energising the values and standards of civil service impartiality and engaging ministers in upholding these? And the other is from Dave Penman of the FDA. If ministers won't defend the impartiality of the civil service, do we need greater independence for the cabinet secretary and permanent secretaries to speak out in its defence? I could not ask you those, guys. <laughs> <clears throat> so, of, of course, as cabinet secretary and head of the civil
2: service, when the two jobs are combined, which I think they, they should be, Uh, you want to defend the civil service in terms of the values that you've got there. They're in the civil service code. Impartiality is there in the code. So, of course, you're going to uh, defend it. You need to do that privately with ministers. Uh, You need to be public in terms of supporting the values of the civil service. They're there in in CRAG, in legislation now. How do you think
1: publicly, because the cabinet sector is incredibly constrained, Um, uh, but... Yeah. They also have a public role. How, you do. How do you and, and to be honest, you know, the, the
2: idea that you're behind closed doors is quite funny. I used to appear before a select committee about once a month, yeah. you know, like you are not a, a private figure in the days of Sir Humphrey. I mean, it, it's changed quite radically. You make speeches. You're on camera quite a lot. So I think there is a role for uh, supporting the civil service. But also there's a role for talking to ministers about how they want the thing to go, because we've all we've heard from George, from everybody here about how this this is a team and you all need to work together. You know, you see, I look back on the things that went wrong and it's exactly what what everybody said. Churn is a real problem. I've just come back from Singapore. You know, God, no churn in Singapore. Ministers and civil servants talking to both of them. Um, One of the great things there, let's be blunt about it, is much higher pay you get much higher pay you don't have to churn in the civil service because we all know the way you get promoted in the civil service is moving and you know so you've got to move to get more pay so if we had a better pay system we wouldn't get the churn ministers churn my request to david cameron in 2010 he said to me so what do you want after he told me all the things he wanted like 100 free schools for God's sake.
3: Got more than 100.
2: That'd be great. Yeah. OK. Um, <laughs> um, won't go there. Yet. Can we go there? We, we can if it. you want, but I mean, like, not probably off message, I think. But the, the, uh, I said to him, just give me longevity of ministers in place. Now, actually, the thing that did deliver that most was not him, but was coalition. Because coalition meant that you couldn't change ministers anything like as much because there weren't as many Lib Dems to go around it did have quite a dramatic impact if you look at the numbers. Um, So I I think reducing the churn, and and what that does, if we paid ministers and civil servants a lot more, you then get the problem of uh, diversity not being quite so bad. I am really worried about diversity in the civil service, but I'm really worried that actually you can't live on a senior civil service salary in London and... uh, uh, get a property. And basically, a lot of civil servants looking at this, particularly when they're not being supported uh, by, you know, statements out that we've heard all about, basically vote their feet. You know, they're really smart. They can get paid a lot more elsewhere. Uh, and that's a tragedy if that happens. And the only ones you've got left are ones with the bank of mum and dad. And as a bank of mum and dad, I know that. And, you know, that's the way it's going to work. And that is not a diverse civil service. That's not what we want.
1: Thanks, Gus. We can can come to free schools later if people (laughs) want to. But questions in the room. Uh, Lucy, if you just say who you are and then there's a roving mic as well. I'll take three.
3: Thank you. Lucy Fisher from the Financial Times. Um, Can I ask about Suella Braverman's handling of her speeding uh, offence? And specifically, in asking civil servants to try and secure her special treatment, a private one-on-one session for a speed awareness course, did she break the ministerial code? And in asking civil servants to do that, was she asking them to break the civil service code? Thank you.
1: Thanks, Lucy. Take a few. There's one over here and one up front. Hello. My name's Andrew, Andrew Edwards.
2: Although you've said we don't want the American system, right, really shouldn't we have the American system... I am one of the few fans of, I think, Liz Truss. Right, Actually, I thought she was very badly treated by her inner civil service group. And if she'd been surrounded by more positive people who could still say, Liz, you can't do that, she would still be Prime Minister.
1: Okay, Thank you. And one at the front here. Hi, I'm Tom Windsor.
2: I did the railways and then the police. It may be of interest that uh, in the railways, a SPAD is a signal passed at danger. (laughs) Uh, My question is not about the current Home Secretary. We don't call it the permanent civil service for nothing. What's the solution if a Secretary of State just can't stand her permanent secretary, especially when the Secretary of State is scared of the permanent secretary or those doing his bidding, um, that somehow the civil servants will will do her legs, that's a policing term, will do her legs, for example, by briefing against uh, possible breaches of the ministerial code. There are ministers who are scared.
1: Okay, thank you, uh, Tom. So, Sweller-Braverman, the US system and uh, uh, advice around that, and Relationship breakdown between uh, ministers and permanent secretaries. Who wants to go first? Rachel, do you want to come in on any of those? Oh, um, I'll go the last two. The, yeah, um, US uh, So I look to my right. On I think
3: the the problem of the of the US system is that everyone clears out, and you have to recruit everyone in. Um, and I think that does cause massive problems of institutional knowledge, speed of decision making, how much you can do. Obviously, one of the big differences in the U.S. system is, is what the departments do. Their secretaries of state themselves tend to be experts. They're not parliamentarily chosen. So I think, I think there are lots of problems with a, a, a complete churn of advisers in the American model. Um, I think you could bring in more people who really know what they're talking about mm. on a subject you choose you know one of the things that i find fascinating is there actually are some very serious pro-brexit economists uh mervyn king would be an example i don't understand why downing street didn't bring in mervyn king right like there are there are lots of people i've no idea whether they asked me said no like broadly um like I, i do think that there's an argument for that the complete churn you know uh i had a very similar experience to george and others about the frustration that a lot of the civil servants I worked with in Downing Street had less experience of education than I did because they'd only so recently come into the department. So so that's why I don't completely support it. Um, I think think there are a couple of problems that are happening right now, and and I would slightly separate them. I'd be interested in Gus and George's view. I think you have to accept that if you want a team, then Mm -hmm. if a minister really can't work with their permanent secretary, you are going to have to change the Permanent secretary at some point. Like the the minister is the democratically elected and chosen person. They have to be there, and you, you do have to move them. I think there is something very toxic that is happening right now with some parts of government, which is just a complete breakdown of trust between the two groups. Where ministers are terrified that there will be leaks of whatever they say. That um, uh, that fundamentally. The, the civil service want them gone and the civil service I think are also quite rightly really fed up with consistent attacks on them in general uh that they feel they can't defend um and I I don't know how you turn that around this parliament mm-hmm. I, I really don't I, I think it is a really big problem.
1: Thanks Rachel. Should we do swell above them the Ministerial code, and then uh, move on to the other questions. George, what do you make of that?
4: Well, I'm going to start on those as well. <laughs> <laughs> Gus, Gus is once the guardian of the uh, civil service and ministerial code. I, I, I wanted to make a point about, you, you mentioned um, you know, Liz Truss and the American system. So leave aside the administration, which, you know, when I went to the US last April, 15 months into uh, the Biden administration, there were still just key posts not filled and people who didn't know whether they really had a job and vacancies and all sorts. So I think it's quite problematic from that point of view. (laughs) But it's Mm -hmm. also the case... The system we have, in my view, is far (coughs) superior to a presidential (coughs) system. You know, the United States has been characterised in recent decades with, you know, political (coughs) dynasties. You know, first the Kennedys, the Clintons, (coughs) Bush senior, Bush junior. You know, at at least in this country, we have our system is able to throw new people into that uh, role. But the thing about being prime minister is you don't have a mandate that comes from an election. Uh, Your mandate starts and finishes with the confidence of parliament. And if you wake up in the morning and you've still got the confidence of Parliament, you live to fight another day. Uh, if you fail to maintain the confidence of Parliament, um, you're out, you're finished. Mm. And the thing is, um, Prime Ministers, to understand our constitution recognise that if you want to maintain confidence, you pick a cabinet that's representative of your party so that you can anchor your party together. And you put a lot of effort into relationships with your parliamentary party, because without it, you're finished. And I'm afraid, you know, the big... The, the, you know, some, some prime ministers manage that for 10 years. Uh, some manage it for just 45 days. And, and we all know why, you know, Liz Truss didn't manage it for longer. She just didn't make use uh, of, of her own parliamentary um, uh, party. And then on the... Look, on the... Um, I don't. The answer is I don't know what the, uh, the you know the circumstances of the of the case are. Uh, I'm sure this is you know something that will obviously be um, looked at. I think it links to the point maybe the gentleman there, which is um, I think there's a tendency sometimes where we have these rules for them to, to be turned into a kind of you know gotcha kind of mm. debate. I've, the thing that's always surprised me about our system is um, rarely do people get done for any serious uh, you know wrongdoing. It's usually some. Uh, you know, minor technical crossing of a of a line uh, that then gets blown out of all proportion. It's a big weakness, I think, in our system that we that we have these distractions. Um, and I think, though, on your point about whether people are scared, I had a very you know clear principle, which is that. Uh, although I was in a department where I understood that probably the majority of people, uh, you know, probably didn't vote for my party. I think DEFRA, uh, you know, is perhaps uh, even less of a propensity to do that than the civil service at large. I always let these people into my confidence, quite a long way, actually, um, but drew a line um, in, in, at the point that if something uh, were ever to leak, it wouldn't be the end of, of the world. So it's broadly, you know, what I might have said Um, candidly, uh, as a free backbencher, plus a bit more. Uh, Bring them into your confidence. Expect that confidence to be uh, respected. If it isn't on occasion, well, uh, who cares? Um, Good governance requires you uh, to let people into your confidence and understand uh, properly where you're coming from. Ministerial
1: code, and then particularly Tom's question about the sort of... Because I do think the Secretary of State, permanent Secretary relationship is one of those kind of founding relationships. So let's
2: start with that relationship because I've dealt with issues where ministers have come to me and said I'm not getting on with this sack This isn't working. And my general response has been uh well, you know, how long have you been working together? If it's been like one day uh, or not even one day, I might say to them that's really stupid. You have no idea what working with this person is and if you sack them Believe me, the markets are going to kill you. And surprise, surprise, we saw that <laughs> happening, didn't we? Uh, good old Tom Scholar. So um, so there are, there are ways to do this. I have had those conversations, and I've basically said, try it for a while. If it's not working, come back, and we'll resolve things. And I've done that by basically moving the people and coming up with a different answer. And generally, that's been done quite smoothly to everyone's satisfaction. Um, it's difficult, uh, and, of course, there are going to be personality things that just don't work, and you have to deal with that. So I think that's fine. Questions about ministerial code. Uh, in a sense, I, I'm with George here. There's One of the things that was wrong about ministerial codes that people thought of, journalists in particular, were about is, aha, gotcha, you broke the ministerial code, therefore you must resign, which is not true, right, and shouldn't be true. It should be... <coughs> You, you break the ministerial code. It's actually a relatively minor offence. You know, I'm going to give you a yellow card and, you know, we'll move on. I, I stress, in talking about this, I have absolutely no knowledge whatsoever about Sabella Brabman case. So, I, you know, I cannot be co- told I'm commenting on that. which is, Well, I haven't accepted any of the million and one offers to, to go on the media to talk about it. because I don't know. Um, But I I am glad that we have a process that allows those things to be investigated. I think that's sensible. Uh, Prime Minister's using that process. I would personally like the independent investigators to have rather more power to take up, uh, to start investigations if they weren't there. Um, But, you know, uh, hopefully we'll get to the bottom of this and and then the Prime Minister will
1: make a decision as to what should be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thanks, Gus. Aisha, one of the things about the Bravman case was that the hmm. civil service did say no actually, the striking point here Mm. in the context of impartiality and the concept of a Mm. permanent civil service. Um, Your thoughts on that and then any of the other questions?
0: Well, I mean, Mm. I think it's just... Look, first of all, I just think Rishi Sunak has Mm. got... There's a clear path that he should take, which is he should just order. None of us know the full facts of of what's happened. The only way to establish this is for the ethics advisor to to have a look at it. And as Gus said, he he may find that you know, it's something bad has happened, but it's not that bad in the sort of like sliding scales of sort of crimes and and misdemeanours. So I think Rishi Sunak, by, by delaying this, just is making himself look incredibly weak and he's letting the story rumble on and on and on. And of course... The added problem is we've got these migration figures coming out towards the end, and that is going to, you know, that's going to sort of have a collision of this already difficult political story with this absolute kind of hot button sort of political stushy that's on on the horizon. So to (laughs) to coin a Glaswegian phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, there'll be a few Glasgow kisses involved at some point, (laughs) (laughs) metaphorically speaking. So I just feel like he has got a really clear route through this, which he should have immediately said, okay, you know, Salori, crack on basically, um but I think, in terms of the what what I think is interesting about sort of her judgment on this we, we, we don 't know what what has happened, but clearly she 's asked the civil service they have said no, we don 't know in, in what exactly how strong a terms she 's asked them and, mm. and how uncomfortable they made her feel, but I just think from a from a judgment point of view, and her special advisors as well have got to be looked at they 've clearly lied to the press because the press said to them, did she Get in. Was she involved in speeding and they said no? That is a lie. That actually is uh, if you're a special advisor, you should be sacked for doing that because you're an extension of the ministerial code. You should not be like knowingly lying to people. But secondly, just given that she has had a difficult time coming back in um, as home secretary because she did breach the ministerial code before, you would think they should be hyper-vigilant uh, about this. And I just don't understand why she didn't just do the course, because I actually think she could have done herself, from a purely comms and reputation point of view, I think she could have done herself quite a lot of credit by saying, look, I am the Home Secretary, but I'm proving I'm not above the law. I have to, you know, be subject to the same rules as you, she might have been quite a laugh during the They might have quite liked her. You know, she could have, you know, she could have bothered with you. So I, for me, I just do I think it's just really yeah. bad political... We're um, straying
1: a little bit from civil service impartiality. Yeah. So Sorry, then Amy. in terms
0: of um, <laughs> if there's a there's another sushi between the permanent secretary and the ministers. I think a lot of this depends on, first of all, how long has the home secretary or the, the secretary of state or minister been in post? We have talked about churn. There's a lot of churn in the civil service. There's a lot of churn... In politics, I mean, there's a lot of churn of prime ministers at the moment, let's not kid ourselves. So, I think if, you, if you're a new Secretary of State and you've only been there for, let's say, a month or so, and you're going to the, the Cabinet Secretary and you're like, I can't stand the permanent secretary, they've got to go, and they've been there for a long time, I think you've got to say, hang on a minute, like, let's just take a step back. You've been here for literally five minutes, you might be gone in five minutes. This permanent secretary's been here for quite a long time, has done a really good job. I think you've got to, you can't just see because the minister's elected, they have primacy over just like getting rid of a permanent secretary mm. like that. Clearly, if a minister has been there for a long, long time, they know the department, they, they've been seen to deliver, and they have evidence that the permanent secretary or indeed another senior civil servant on their team is consistently blocking them or undermining them or not being professional, then I think they have every right to sort of raise that as an issue. But I don't think it's as simple as saying, you know, the minister always wins. I think you, you've got to look at you've got to look
3: at things in the round.
1: Thanks, Aisha. Who do you think
3: should be the ultimate decision maker on that? So let's have this scenario in which, let's forget the five minutes. Let's say they've been there for a month and they go and say, I really can't work with this guy. Not because I think they're a bad person, but, you know, we we just can't work together for these reasons. Uh, Is it Gus's job to say tough or is it the prime minister's job? Well, funny enough, we did have situations like that before,
0: certainly in my time as a special advisor, where sometimes there were. And there was a very good woman called Sue Gray, who used to um, (laughs) sort out quite a lot of these issues. And she was quite skilled at doing that because everybody was terrified of Sue Gray. But I think that is a situation where that's why you have to have a really top flight level of very, very, very senior civil servants who are there and they are trusted by the Prime Minister, they're trusted by the Cabinet Secretary, they're trusted by the Permanent Secretaries as well, that they can go in and do a bit of troubleshooting in in this situation. Mm. I also think there's a bit of reality, right? If you turned up, even in like quite a big job in the private sector, you couldn't just, it would, you know, even your head of HR, and again, having worked in the private sector, there were clashes of personality You'd be quite hard pushed to be in a job for like a month and just go to your head of HR and say, right, get rid of that person because I just don't like them. You know, we are adults. We have to live in the real world. You, you as a minister, you, you might not love this person, but you have to do your best. On, you have to be professional as well and try. And if it comes to the point where it is, there's a complete impasse and everything breaks down on a non-professional basis, then, of course, you know, adjustments need to be made. But I think sometimes there's a little bit of feeling like the ministers and the special advisors have got this entitlement, just be like, off with your head, off the head, I don't like you, off. And that that just is not, that's just not professional,
1: it's just not adult. Because, I mean, to Rachel's question, ultimately, it's the Prime Minister, isn't it? Ultimately, if the Prime Minister loses their confidence, then... Yeah, exactly.
2: Uh, Ultimately, that's the case. But all the things Aisha said are, are true along the way. You try not to get to that situation because it's actually not really in anybody's interest uh, for that to happen. So you work very hard at it. You deploy your, um, your resources, uh, the formidable Sue Gray. We're all scared of Sue, let's be absolutely <laughs> clear. Um, and, you know, you, you try and work these things out, work out what, what's the cause of it. And, and quite often you can find out that there are, there are things that
1: are the cause of it that you can get rid of, that you can actually make work. Um, so. Let's do a really quick round of final questions and then short answers. But we'll go to the uh, back there, the lady on the end there.
5: Thank you. Um, I'm Dr. Kate Ferguson. I'm co-executive director of Protection Approaches. Um, a lot of my work with um, government and civil service is on the international policy side, but I think I hope my question applies across the board. Um, I'm just interested in where that the emphasis on impartial evidence, technical expertise, particularly in bureaucracies, can um, breed culture and expectation around process and make it even harder to step outside the lines of the day-to-day. And we've already heard, maybe sometimes put some limits on creativity. And some of my observations in working with our embassies um, and with FCO and DFID and now, of course, the merged departments, but also cabinet office, is that when you have that prevailing understanding and culture with the embassy and country teams and then the thematics is that when something happens very, very quickly, and I'm thinking now sort of in those weeks before genocide happens or those weeks before a coup, where those with eyes on the country, those on the ground, know what is coming or have a sense, but the absence of the flexibility or perhaps the culture on just passing up technical evidence expertise you know all of the words that you've all talked about has led to bad decisions windows being missed and so my question is really are there recommendations around either changing how those positions are hired or is it actually about changing the mechanisms because I'm not sure if it's the culture or values of impartiality and expertise or in mm-hmm. fact the bureaucratic mechanism. Yeah. So I'd I'm be really
1: interested so in that. So Thank you. Thank you. Uh, there was another question there, and then a quick one there.
4: Hello, my name is Alex Vince. I'm a serving civil servant. Um, so we appear to be in a period where civil service morale is a little bit low at the moment. So my question is two-part. First, does the civil service need to be confident if it is to provide expert and impartial advice? And secondly, does the political and the ministerial side have a role in building up that confidence?
1: thank you and then final quick question there and then we'll have quick answers thanks paul atherton fellow of the royal society of arts um many people have talked about uh diversity as being imperative to impartiality and i'm just curious about how the panel sees encouraging people outside of the normal channels to encourage them to join the civil service great thank you so diversity and encouraging uh, other applicants question about morale and the confidence in the sort of service and then a sort of path dependency whether impartiality creates lack of creativity there. Quick answers from each of the panel I'll go round and then we'll wrap up. George first. Um,
4: just on the, the evidence uh, point I think it is really important that that evidence comes up but I, um, every, any minister that goes into DEFRA comes in saying we're going to have an evidence based approach and the truth is when you say to the scientific experts what should we do? Uh, the first thing they do is run for cover and say there are evidence gaps, we're not sure, it's unclear. And the the, the truth is that um, daily you are confronted with the decisions that you cannot put off and you have to make the best judgment you can with the evidence you've got. And the other tendency with evidence sometimes is that it becomes what I'd call small p political, in that increasingly uh, there will be, I used to get this, recommendations from the health and safety executive relating to pesticides, which would say that all five tests are met to approve a particular authorization. However, for uh, what they call social science reasons, we don't think you should. And for social mm. science, read, you know, we're going to get it in the neck from green NGOs, and we don't want that. So, I'd have to say to them, look, leave the politics to me. Yeah. Uh, I will take responsibility for that and take the flak for doing mm. uh, the right thing. So, Minister, still, um, you know, it's not simple. The the evidence uh, point on the on the morale. Look, I. I mean, I, I I'd like to think I had quite mm. uh, good morale in my uh, in the teams that I that I was with. I used to do a, a, a barbecue every summer, and anyone past and present from my private office used to to come along to that. Um, mm. We and, and I used, to, as I said, let people quite a long way into my confidence and just treat them with respect. And actually, respect for the for the reasons I said earlier, that ethos of the of the civil service. And I think if you if it's in your body language that you genuinely do, and you you go out of your way to engage people, I think you get. Uh, you know the best out of them but there used to be a big uh, spread within uh, you know within the DEFRA agencies I always remember CFAS which was the the fishery science was always a happy ship other bits of the the organization less so Mm. and I think they can constantly learn about what makes a happy ship from the agencies that do well thank you very much Rachel do you want to go next
3: Uh, So I'll I'll talk about diversity So I talk about it. I think it's incredibly important that we try and find new routes uh, for people to come in. But I also think it's very important that we figure out how to keep them once they're there. Um, I've just hired a former civil servant, a guy called Tim Loynick, who I think lots of people would recognize as a very generative, creative Mm -hmm. person. Uh, I hope he doesn't mind me speaking on his behalf. I'm delighted to have hired him but I'm also appalled that the civil service was able to let him go. And um, what I have uh, observed is quite a lot of people who've been incredibly helpful to the civil service who come in through unusual routes have then not managed to find their way up and through the hierarchy, which, which I think perhaps speaks a bit mm. to your point. I don't know the details of your area. But, you know, one of the mild frustrations when you're working in downstream as a is this kind of very hierarchical, you know, things go down the chain, they take several weeks to work up, you're never quite sure who is down there who really knows about it and how many times their stuff has been amended and chucked up and down. And I think there are occasions when that chain of command and that kind of deep sense of hierarchy mm. is not helpful to good advice and creativity, which we all want
1: Thank you. We're over time, but quickly, Gus and then Aisha for the final one. Um,
2: you're absolutely right. Pace and professionalism, really, really important. I'm, you know, those are two of my P's. I mean, that's exactly what we need. And you're right about expertise as well. You know, we need that. The question about evidence uh, quite often is it, it's, it's always going to be imperfect. Right? And hence, the one bit of training all civil servants and ministers should have is decision making under uncertainty. Right? And that is absolutely vital and also, you know, you look back at COVID, what was the breakthrough moment when we started to create evidence, when we got ONS to actually measure some stuff that we weren't measuring beforehand? Because the rest of us, you know, don't get me going on it. Um, so, so I think you, you never just say, oh, there's not enough evidence. You, you think about how can we do something to create evidence. Uh, I think that's important. And the whole diversity thing is, so uh, to my mind... You know, if you're going to have this as a, as a kind of job that you can only do if you've got rich parents, I mean, you know, what do you expect, right? And, and as you say, there are some people coming through who, I, in fact, a large number of ex-civil servants now have just got out because various barriers got in the way of them doing what they want to do, and we need to kind of look at all of those. The morale question is absolutely right. We can actually measure it. We've got proper evidence now. Uh, from the Civil Service People's Survey, which I was glad to start. Uh, and we know about problems of uh, particularly the well-being of civil servants in uh, places like um, Cabinet Office, uh, DFE, DEFRA, and, and overall. So there are some really serious issues there, which I think uh, I'm hoping that uh, senior civil servants are actually addressing now, because there is a big issue mm-hmm. on, on morale. And it's it's just such a fantastic career and a fantastic job. And I just you know, implore everybody, do it, because it's just brilliant. And um, we, the reason that we, we believe in government as an answer to things, whereas in America, government is always the last thing you'd ever think of as the answer. If you've, I've lived in the States twice, and it's like, if government's the answer, you've asked the wrong question. Here, we actually believe that government can make a difference. And, and that seems to be now true, actually, across the political spectrum.
1: It's a civil service plug. Aisha?
0: <laughs> um, agree with what everybody has said about um, expertise and evidence. Just one thing to add, I think when you're in a fast-paced situation with imperfect evidence, I think one thing that will help people is being a bit more transparent about the decision-making process and actually yeah. saying, look, this is, some, this is the evidence we have now these are the finely tuned judgments we're going to make. And that we saw that a bit with, with COVID. Of course, yes, there's lots of distractors, but I actually thought the government did a good job of bringing the advisors to, to the forefront and actually saying, you know, on a nightly basis, look, these are the latest stats. So I think transparency helps with that. In terms of um, morale, I mean, I completely agree with everything that Gus said, you know, much, much more needs to be done. And as Rachel says, to retain people, which feeds into the, to the diversity um, thing. I'm always struck by how many people would love a career in the civil service if they knew about it, if they felt that it was for them. It's a bit like politics. You know, Often you just think it's not for for you. And actually, the people who often use the services that the civil service are are trying to deliver, they are exactly the kind of people that we want to to get into the civil service. People who, for example, have maybe struggled with work and they have really understood how to navigate the the job centre system, things like that. I think the other thing that would really help, instead of, again, having these war of words with the civil service, for many people, particularly women, particularly older people, particularly parents, particularly people with some sort of long-term disability or illness, things like flexible working and working from home is not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing. Lots of civil service stuff can be done from home. And we've kind of... This big culture war about working from home, particularly on the civil service, I think that's another thing which, if you sort of took that sort of level of, of aggression away on that front... I think you could encourage a lot of people. I mean, just quick, quick anecdote. A girl on my nail bar said that um, she, one of her friends had joined the civil service and it was one of these uh, kind of a, a, an arm's length body. And she said she couldn't believe how much she was enjoying it. She had been a nail technician in the salon and she was like earning good money and she was, you know, hopefully on a career path. And this girl said to me, do you think I could do something like that? And I was like, yeah, you, you, you've absolutely, you, you could just, these jobs are not for white, men that have gone to Oxford or Cambridge. There is a whole plethora of jobs and we need the talent and the lived experience of people from across society. To Excellent. Our civil society. A
1: nice note to end on. Thank you, uh, Aisha. Thank you to the panel. Thanks to everyone in the room and on the live stream. Sorry to those who had questions that we uh, couldn't get to, but we are already well over time, which is my fault. A few quick plugs. Um, We'll publish a paper soon on uh, some of these reflecting on today's discussion and uh, uh, the other debates about impartiality. So keep an eye out for that. We're also hoping to organise an event with a slightly more international tilt to look at some of the um, evidence from the US, France, uh, New Zealand, Australia. Um, We've also got an event uh, on the 13th of June about what makes a successful special advisor, which I'm sure will touch on some of these questions as well. So keep uh, a look out for all of those. Uh, Thank you again and see you soon.